You're listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Whining about infinite growth on a finite planet is my game. Did you know? that it has now been a whole year since PGAP launched its first episode with Martin Tai and Jonathan Miller from the Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy? Why, it just seems like yesterday that I was tearing my hair out trying to figure out this new dan-fangled equipment and editing software in the middle of a Melbourne lockdown. I almost feel a little nostalgic. So I'm quite happy that... One year, 23 episodes, and 31 guests later, PGAP has become so much more successful than I was ever anticipating. For a start, people have actually said yes, non-begrudgingly even, to being interviewed by me, which is one very crucial hurdle crossed. Furthermore, people are actually listening to the episodes, (laughs) another important factor. Depending on which metric I'm reading, PGAP is in the top 10% of listened to podcasts out there and just about every episode has performed better than average. On podcast platforms with star rating systems, all I am seeing is five star reviews. So I've jinxed absolutely everything now that I've said this, but it looks like PGAP is here to stay, which is just as well because I don't think I'm too biased when I say that transitioning to a post-growth society is the most important existential challenge facing humanity. The podcast has been a fantastic way to compile the diversity of thoughts and opinions on this issue in a conversational manner which offers a break from reading up on the issues. Now, did you know that it is World Population Day on July the 11th? It is an international day of observation from the UN, and it might be fair to say that the descriptions of these events are progressively more guarded and coy with every passing year. For example, on the website this year, it says, many countries are expressing growing concern over changing fertility rates. Historically, alarmism over fertility rates has led to abrogations of human rights. UNFPA advises against reactionary policy responses, which I know is coming from a good place, but nevertheless, it is not exactly an inspiring rally call to action now, is it? Speaking of population, it is time to give my hats off to Sustainable Population Australia in a big way, whose very generous support have not only made this podcast possible, but also changed my work-life balance forever with all those hours of recording and editing. (laughs) But seriously, what have I appreciated most about SPA's support for the series is providing me with the flexibility to talk to many different perspectives on the very vexing issue of overpopulation, including many people who would disagree to some extent with SPA's position. So one of the things I've been very excited about with PGAP has been the opportunity to showcase that it is possible to openly discuss differences in key opinions with mutual respect. Speaking of SPA... It has occurred to me that in just over a year of PGAP, I never have actually interviewed any of the holders of immense intellect that constitutes one's average SPA member. I really felt I need to remedy this. Thus, my interview with one of SPA's spearheads, Adelaide's very own John Coulter. For not is it only World Population Day around the corner, 
It is also the 50th year anniversary since John put an ad in The Australian on May the 21st, 1971, calling for a recognition that the resources on planet Earth are finite and that there are limits to growth. They tell me 50 years goes by quickly. I'm yet to find that out personally, but John certainly has an impressive legacy. He was senator for the Democrats in the 80s and briefly the leader of the party in the 90s. You may remember the Democrats. They were a balance of power, keeping the bastards on us for a while there, although new versions are emerging of the party in more recent years. John also took on just about every official spa position over the years, and the organisation benefited from his skills in absolutely everything. I'm not joking. He was treasurer, data list maker, website developer, and resident filmmaker at various stages. To this day, he is a representative for South Australia and Northern Territory on the National Committee. I visited John's immensely beautiful natural heritage property in the Adelaide Hills earlier this year to do the interview and to have a tour of the space. It was gutting to see that a massive bushfire ripped through the property charring much in its wake in the previous summer. Fortunately, the house was spared but the charred background was a chilling reminder that we are now living in borrowed time if we don't curb the magnitude of our human impact on our precious planet. After John's interview, I also talked briefly with the filmmaker Delta O'Harkin, American-based director of new documentary The Way to Live. It joins an ever-growing <laughs> library of films that have dared touch on overpopulation, limits to growth, and the changing consciousness that it is required for us to make fundamental changes in a short amount of time. This is a long episode, folks, but it is World Population Day, so let me indulge. I'll be back at the end to babble at you semi-coherently for another few minutes. Until that opportunity, <laughs> enjoy the conversations. feeling quite very honoured to be sitting here with the great John Coulter. How are you, John? Very well, thank you, Michael, and thank you for coming up. <laughs> are you okay with compliments? You'll get a lot today. <laughs> oh, don't overdo it. But, you know, my first question to you, John, is what's the secret for your longevity? Fairly obviously genes. I've got the right genes. My father died at 97. His grandfather died at the age of 103. I come from, from a long-lived uh, family. You can't pick your genetics, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. Now, we're sitting in your property in the Adelaide Hills. Well, we're about uh, 27, 28 kilometres from the uh, CBD, but one of the advantages of Adelaide is that... Uh, you can have a property like this, which is 29 hectares, that close to, uh, to Adelaide. And we have the advantages of living totally within nature. There's a heritage agreement on this property, so uh, despite the recent fire which went through, uh, we will always have a, a, a natural area here. In uh, South Australia, a heritage agreement means that a, an encumbrance goes on the title 
and the conditions of the um, heritage agreement apply to those who will buy the property and then those who will buy the property again. So it, it goes, it goes on uh, forever. In this case, the heritage agreement is that uh, most of this area must be kept in its natural state. And it was an um, absolute delight to catch up with you last week and walk through the property despite the bushfire that had yes. run through it. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's still stunning and I wish I had the opportunity to see it before the fire. Mm. You gave me a, a, a newspaper advertisement mm-hmm. that I think you organised to put in the Australian 50 From years ago. From 1971, yes. It says, we believe Western technological societies ignored two vital facts, that the resources on planet Earth are finite and the capacity of the environment is to renew resources that are used up uh, and to repair the damage caused by the exploitation of those resources is limited and decreasing and that was, as you said, 50 years ago. And that uh, advertisement was signed by 730 scientists from all over Australia, including Nobel Prize winning uh, Sir McFarlane Burnett and uh, Sir Mark Oliphant also. It was a significant uh, document at the time. It led on to um, a series of Monday conference uh, programs on the ABC uh, which were then subsequently published as a small book, which the ABC um, uh, titled Saving Our Small uh, Planet. Tell me what led you up to this point of getting an ad in the Australian in 1971. Um, what was it that made you start thinking about the environment and and limits to growth and um, what got you to the, the place where you got so many signatories from mm. so many esteemed people. I got involved uh, initially through uh, diving. When I came to Adelaide, I continued uh, diving and in the uh, early to mid 50s, a group called the Underwater Research Group was formed, which was largely uh, peopled by those from the university and also uh, from the South Australian Museum. And we were people who were keen divers. We decided to become the hands and eyes for scientists who were not themselves divers. So we collected samples and we collected data from uh, South Australian waters. So that actually then became an activist group to uh, try and protect marine areas. We were successful in getting the Port Lunga Council to pass a local government ordinance preventing the carrying of spearfishing fishing gear uh, across the Port Nalunga reef, uh, Port Nalunga jetty to get out to the reef. We then continued to uh, agitate for legislation which eventually in 1971 was responsible for the um, uh, aquatic reserve legislation which established areas in the ocean and uh, protected them for a variety of of, um, environmental reasons. Then in 1963, uh, a group was formed called the Town and Country Planning Association, 
largely composed of uh, architects. Town planning was something fairly new then, but there was no Adelaide plan. And after the Second World War, there was an absolute explosion of housing. Uh, so suburbs were going in uh, around Adelaide without any open space, parklands or anything like that. At various times, I became the president and secretary of, of that group. And by the late um, 1960s, I had formulated a policy of opposing uh, uranium exports from Australia. Uh, and the Town and Country Planning Association, I think, was the very first organisation in Australia to enunciate that as a policy. Subsequently, that was adopted by the uh, Conservation Council, which was formed in 1971, uh, and the Australian Conservation Foundation, when I became a councillor in 1973. To go back to your question, uh, what one discovers uh, if one is active in environmental work is that everything is, is really connected to everything else. That if you want to change something in relation to a marine area, you have to get into politics and economics because uh, they're involved. Um, and similarly, uh, if you want to uh, protect an area and the population is growing too large and, and uh, destroying the area, you have to do something about population. All these things are interconnected and they all have to be handled uh, at the same time. My awareness, limited awareness of history, is that um, topics such as population uh, were perhaps a little bit more widely spoken in 1971. How did people generally respond to limits to growth? in terms of limits to economic growth? In well, I, I think there, therein uh, lies the key to the difficulties we've had. Uh, in the late 1960s and into the early 70s, there was an enormous explosion of very high-quality writing on environment. It, it resulted, of course, in the, the limits to growth, um, what, 1972, the limits to growth, of course, came under a, a lot of criticism from economists because uh, it was totally contrary to um, the economic thinking which had pretty well taken centre stage. And I think the um, vested interests of uh, economists, of politicians, of uh, big industry uh, decided that uh, this really has, had to be crushed. And so we saw the um, uh, replacement of the Whitlam government by the Fraser government in 1975, and we saw then the establishment of very much a, uh, an economic rationalist view of the world. So we really went backwards from the 1960s by the mid-1970s, and that has continued until fairly recently. And I'm not sure that COVID has much to do with it. I think that uh, people are waking up to the fact that you just can't have infinite growth. You can't have infinite growth of uh, either consumption or of population. 
there is a return uh, to those thoughts, the writings and so on, which, you know, go back 50 years. I think people like to think that, that their line of activism or advocacy is something that's new. And I think there's a, a line of thinking that before now, everyone just thought we could grow infinitely on a finite planet. And, um, but that wasn't the case, you know, even back in the early 70s, when I think the population wasn't more than three billion, was it? The... About, about three billion, yeah. Go much further than, back than that, go back to uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, you know, in the middle of the uh, 19th century who was uh, writing quite clearly that uh, uh, you couldn't have uh, infinite growth, that the extirpation, and he used that word beautifully, the extirpation of nature for the uh, um, temporary enjoyment of humans was uh, something that would destroy humans um, themselves. Looking at some earlier, other earlier writing, uh, you have in Canberra, um, still alive and still active, um, Stephen Boyden, who wrote an absolutely brilliant essay in The Ecologist in 1973, in which he traced the um, things which were the characteristics of a totally indigenous society living with nature and compared that with a, uh, a modern society living in, a, in an industrial um, economic growth oriented civilization. And uh, what he found was that the uh, modern civilization fulfilled some of those atavistic needs uh, very, very well. But there were some needs of being with nature which were not satisfied at all by a modern life. He pointed out that we'd had uh, something like 40,000 generations of evolution living very, very close to nature. And not only were we adapted in terms of our um, physical requirements of, of food and water and that sort of thing to um, being with nature, we're also psychologically adapted. That was that was the the world in to, to which we were adapted. We've had only um, eight now, you know, nine generations since industrial civilization has grown up. Far too little time to evolve beyond that. So, you have expressions like people will have a holiday in the bush and they say, "Getting away from it all." therein lies an enormous uh, truth that uh, what are you getting away from? What are you getting back to? You're getting back to that, that atavistic need to be in and with nature. And there's an increasing amount of writing now pointing to the, uh, the benefits of, of being in a natural environment. And we saw, you know, the impacts when people couldn't get to nature during lockdown and particularly those mm. who are on the, you know, 10 billionth floor of a, yeah. <laughs> yes. an apartment, you know. Terrible. We haven't yet Terrible. adapted mm. to be stacked on top of each other. You 
took a, a lot of your ideas in um, activism and advocacy and limits to growth to the parliament uh, where you were in the mm. Democrats. Yeah. Uh, do, do you want to give a little bit of a insight into your, your experience with the Democrats in terms of bringing some of these ideas, uh, any uh, reflections or any challenges from that time? Well, there, there were um, three reasons why uh, I chose to uh, join the Democrats and then stand for Parliament. I'd never been a member of any political party until about 1980-81. That was so that I could either praise or damn any political party <laughs> on, you know, from anywhere. But I decided that I would try and jump over the fence, as it were, and try from within the uh, party political system to see if uh, one could be even more effective at bringing about change. Um, the reason for the Democrats was that um, they did have a policy that uh, you could have a conscience vote on every issue. And to me, democracy is terribly important. And, uh, and, and also, um, under uh, Don Chip, they did have a uh, quite a reasonable environmental program and policy, uh, including population. Um, and the, the population policy right at the beginning was one in, one out for Australia in terms of immigration, um, non-selective non in terms of religion, sex, colour of skin or whatever. And was um, that Democrat policy, was that based around the work of environmentalists around that time? No, it was, it was based on the fact that there were... Uh, two strands that came together to form the Democrats. There was the um, original Australia Party, and the Australia Party was very much uh, a pro-environment party, um, and it had adopted a population policy. So a lot of the policies of the uh, Democrats early on was simply Australia Party policies, and um, how would you reflect on your times in the Democrats? So I, I think I've seen either in your biographies or online that um, you made speeches to Parliament addressing um, the problems with growth and limits to growth. Did you find any cut through uh, in the 80s and 90s? I, I mean, obviously you haven't. <laughs> your time in Parliament, it's not like Australia stopped growing. No, I, I, I think if you uh, take a, a broad uh, overview of my time in Parliament, I don't think I achieved very much. Um, one of the things about a, a minor party is that uh, its opportunity to uh, introduce legislation is very limited and the uh, possibility of getting that legislation adopted is even more limited in that no, uh, neither of the major parties will willingly admit that uh, something from a, a minor party is, is a good idea. I suppose I achieved catalytic um, activity in that 
one of the very first things that I did when I got into the Senate was to uh, try and get a Senate inquiry into climate change. Eventually I, I got that up. Uh, that came up with some quite good recommendations, but they've just gathered dust on the, on the shelf. So the Labor government um, under Hawke had promised legislation to protect threatened species for a number of uh, elections, had not delivered. So I got together with a number of um, conservation groups and we formulated our own bill to protect threatened species. Um, now that was voted down by both the Labor and the, uh, and the coalition government. But within a few weeks, Labor had introduced its own legislation. So it acted as a stimulus for uh, Labor to get off its backside and actually do something. Uh, I have to say, its bill was much weaker than the bill that I, I had proposed. So there, there were a number of um, things that uh, acted as a stimulus, I suppose, to others. But uh, in terms of actually achieving a great deal, I don't know that I achieved any more inside than outside Parliament. Well, I think you can speak for anyone who does anything that tries to counter the dominant paradigm and the dominant narrative about measuring degrees of success mm. <laughs> is a very um, difficult thing to do because... You know, I suppose anyone in the environmental movement can say, all right, well, <laughs> we haven't saved the environment, hmm. but have we kept this conversation alive? Have we kept the thread alive? And I guess that's nowhere is that more um, apparent than sustainable population. Australia, when I've spoken to colleagues from um, overseas, they all say, People are so much more willing to talk about it mm. in Australia than, um, I suppose, other places, at least in the Anglosphere. Mm. So give me a little rundown on how you came across SPARA, or it might have been AESP oh. then, um, and your involvement. I think it was pretty obvious that, uh, you know, right back at the beginning, uh, that was one of the one of the uh, essential components to the, to the big picture, that you can't have uh, infinitely growing populations. A doctor in Sydney who, who uh, was a, an obstetrician a gynaecologist, um, he and I got together with a number of other people and we formed ZPG in Australia in 1971 and I set it up here in South Australia. And to give you an indication, the inaugural meeting in Adelaide in 1971, we had over 200 people present. Of course, you had the, uh, the economic rationalists wanting more and more population, and you had particularly the people on the right wanting more population through immigration to uh, dampen wages. And, I mean, they have said as much. Uh, within just the last few days, they want to get get immigration going again so that wages won't rise. Uh, um, Wouldn't that be a tragedy? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> How would you compare attitudes from the broader public and perhaps the political left in 
1971 compared to today. Have you seen changes in attitudes or changes from the left in terms of the arguments against populations? sustainability over the last 50 years? I I think the left has always been confused and uh, (laughs) some on the right have uh, deliberately fostered that confusion. One part of the confusion is to to deliberately confuse the immigration program with the humanitarian program of bringing in refugees, which is a a, a tiny fraction of the, uh, the overall intake. We could perhaps return to that, uh, but just briefly I would say that uh, in terms of even refugees, that a dollar spent overseas will go a hell of a lot further than a dollar spent bringing a person into Australia with all the very expensive infrastructure. I would favour trying to support them more adequately where they are rather than bring bring them into Australia. Uh, I think you can get more human welfare dollar for dollar in that way. With that confusion between uh, refugees and immigrants, the left is saying, oh, you you know, you've got to let in all these poor people. They are are ignoring the the environmental consequences. So the environmental consequences within Australia have been extreme. You know, look at look at the Murray Darling system and the the uh, over exploitation of uh, of water, the um, denudation of of uh, land, um, the loss of species. Uh, there are just so many you know measures. The very very high um, greenhouse gas emissions from Australia, bringing a person into Australia from most other places in the world will ensure they will do a lot more damage here than if they had stayed where they were. But that also raises the the issue of what Australia is doing in terms of growth. And uh, I think it's terribly important to recognise that the issue of inequity between uh, Australians and many people overseas and even within Australia and and within many other countries, that issue of inequity is a very, very large component of what we have to deal with when we're dealing with uh, a sustainable future. I make this this, um, uh, proviso right, right up front. GDP is a horrible, horrible measure. It doesn't measure anything that's particularly useful uh, in terms of uh, sustainability at all. Um, however, it is the measure which most economists use, which most politicians use, and which uh, ordinary people in the street at least um, begin to understand. Um, GDP broadly, is a measure of the rate at which resources are taken from nature, turned to use and then turned into, uh, ultimately into waste and put back into nature as, as waste. If we look at the World Bank figures for 2017, uh, the global GDP 
was $81 trillion. That's $81,000 billion. And the world population at that stage was 7.5 billion. So that meant that the average global per capita GDP was 11,500. And compare that with the uh, GDP, per capita GDP in Australia at that stage, which was nearly 54,000. So there's an enormous disparity between the two. Even with that average global figure, the global human footprint um, was equivalent to 1.7 Earths. So we would need uh, 1.7 Earths if we were to be taking resources and making waste uh, in a sustainable fashion. Go back to the $11,500 figure, if we're going to make that um, sustainable, we need to uh, more or less halve that down to 5,750. And that would be a per capita GDP at the present time, which would be sustainable. And uh, I suppose the question is, how do we get there? Because I'm imagining earning $5,700 a year and it'd be a bit hard to buy a property in Bondi <laughs> on, on that income or actually anywhere in Australia. Well, so the, the, the situation becomes more, more significant than that in that on present uh, trajectories, population is going to go from 7.5 to around about 11 billion. Now, if that were to happen and we were to stay within this sustainable limit, this bound that has, has to eventually be uh, fulfilled, the um, $5,700 comes down to $3,920. Which makes so, it very, very difficult so to buy from if, the if in 2021, we were going to be both sustainable and equitable, we would ha have a per capita income of less than 4000 just just under $4,000. As I say, that compares with Australia's present per capita um, GDP of nearly 54000 So that's the size of the difference. But... What would it mean if Australia were to come down to that figure? 76 nations have a per capita GDP smaller than $3,920. And they, they comprise 3.6 billion people, which is 48% of the world's population. So 48% of the world's population are now living below a level which is sustainable. Meanwhile, the rich world is wanting to grow and grow and grow and grow both its population and its uh, per capita consumption. And uh, I was reading a um, summary of a paper just this morning which was dealing with population and equity, but again was concentrating on the populations in the third world. 
the critical populations are the populations in the first world because uh, if you have a very, very high per capita uh, GDP and you're increasing your population, your impact on, on the world is much, much greater. The twin problems of equity and uh, environmental sustainability which lie underneath you know, all the other problems that we face, these are inextricably linked. We're not going to be able to achieve any sort of environmental sustainability uh, unless we have reasonable equity because not only is it morally indefensible but also it would be politically impossible. Sooner or later uh, the poor countries of the world will say enough is enough and we're not going to have equity unless we have sustainability because uh, unless we have sustainability we're going over the edge of the cliff anyway and we're going to destroy the, 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 the planet we're living on and as many scientists have said uh, we might finish up with a population of less than two billion people by the end of this century. We have to address both those issues and neither of those issues are being adequately addressed by the political processes or even by most people in the environment movement. The conflicts that I've noticed with dialogue in the environmental movement is the population versus wealth distribution hmm. argument. There's also almost a divide where there are so many people saying, okay, because the top 1% own about 50% hmm. of the world's income, and generally, you know, a lot of Australians have assets of at least $1 million, which I think puts you in the top 1%, then you can't talk about population because it's a wealth distribution problem. So it's been interesting um, hearing you just then bringing both of those you, you, together. You, you've got to tackle both of them. Mm. You, it's not one or the other, it's both. And I, and I think it's good that that is said over and over <laughs> again, mm. so mm. it gets drilled in people's heads. I know you're not the biggest fan of mainstream Australian media at this current point in time. <laughs> um, I, I suppose, you know, two questions is why not? <laughs> and the second question is, um, have you seen a deterioration of mainstream media over time? And I guess for all effects and purposes, we're not oh. just talking about Sky News, are we? We're talking yeah, about... I mean, population, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Monday conference program on ABC television covered the population issue very, very thoroughly in the early 1970s. There was no problem then at all. Whereas now, the ABC just won't touch anything on population. They, they will do a program which they will call population, but it will be slanted um, or set within a context of economic rationalism. You've got, you've got to have economic growth so the question uh, of population is, is somehow got to be seen within that context. So growth is the, the, the important objective, not sustainability. If you start from a um, perspective of sustainability, 
then economics must be a subsidiary uh, role in that discussion. The ABC is particularly uh, bad in that the principal um, journalists, they will never question a politician about economic growth at all. In, in the sense of, of questioning whether we should have economic growth or not. Uh, economic growth is a given and, and if you can have 4% economic growth instead of 3% economic growth, that's, that's even better. Could this be um, a process, I suppose, in government-funded media of a death by a thousand cuts? You know, you've had your funding slashed so much, but don't rock the boat, otherwise we'll slash your funding even more is is is, is that part of but what a dangerous situation that puts us in when when the uh, independent quote end quote independent uh, media in Australia won't pick up the most important issue, uh, which is that we're not living sustainably, and we're not living sustainably because we've got too many people demanding too much from a finite environment. It's as simple as that. Well, we're coming towards the end here, but I thought I'd just take the opportunity. Uh, there's been two series of PGAP, and um, finally I've got around to interviewing someone who's actually from Sustainable Population <laughs> Australia. But so I wanted to give Sustainable Population Australia SPA, the very generous um, supporters of this podcast, mm. uh, a bit of a spotlight here. Um, so I just want to ask a broad question about how you came across SPA, how you joined. I think you're even national president for a time. Um, and any, you know, reflections on your time in SPA? As I say, I formed ZPG in South Australia in 1971. Now that, that remained active through the uh, 70s and then uh, fizzled out in the uh, 1980s. And then a, a group, principally in uh, Canberra, formed uh, um, uh, Australians for an Ecologically Sustainable Population uh, in Canberra in 1988. At that stage, uh, Jenny Goldie, who was uh, one of those uh, founder, founders of AESP, uh, was on my staff. So inevitably... <laughs> <laughs> I was one of the very, very early uh, early members of AESP. I have been uh, president, I have been uh, vice president. I did the uh, newsletter for about six years. Uh, I've, I've played a number of uh, roles. And it's, I guess, a testament to SPA and, um, dare I say, your input into it. It's been around for 35 years despite the setbacks of, mm. of the issue and despite the community setbacks and mm. despite uh, media and... Um... If you scratch most people, um, they will say that population is uh, an important issue. For instance, um, just on Saturday, after the, uh, the bushfires here, on Saturday I was at a meeting organised by the uh, Bush Care and uh, Trees for Life groups. Uh, how do we manage weeds and things after a, uh, after a bushfire? I didn't raise it, but one of the people in the audience said, 
But how about population? Population is the is the thing that's you know making it very difficult to protect these areas in the hills. I I find that uh, if I get anywhere near the issue of population, most people will react quite quite positively and warmly towards it. Um, but what is blocking is is not the the average person, the person in the street. Uh, it's it's the politicians, the vested interests, and the media. Just in the last few days, there's been a lot of talk about affordable housing and people not not being able to afford houses. Um, and they're talking about you know building more houses. Everything on the supply side, but nothing on the demand side. If we go back to the uh, immigration rate that we had before, you know, uh, an extra million people every three or four years, um, and they all need housing. Do you have a favourite moment in Spa, or whether that be the Fenner Conference, or when Ehrlich visited, or, or, or anything? I think it's just a, um, a hard, steady grind to <laughs> to get to get through we realize that we're facing very very uh, tough forces against us forces with very powerful vested interests and um, it's not surprising therefore that uh, it's difficult to um, to get the alternative message but um, equally it's it's absolutely vital that we do. How, how do you keep yourself resilient when it would be, I can imagine it would be, I mean, I, I find after a decade that um, my, it's, it's so easy just to go, screw yeah. you humans. Hmm. How do you keep, for loss of a better word at the moment, so kind of a, that, that spark of spiritual <laughs> revival happening? Yeah. Hmm. It's, it, it's a very, very good question and a very important one and it's um, extremely difficult because um, what the, the world out there regards as reality, you know, how often will you uh, hear a politician say, well, the reality is that, you know, <laughs> um, the real world out there is is one of continual population, economic growth, and consumption, and consumption, and more consumption, um, and we live within that that world, and to some extent we have to conform with it, unless we're going to live as hermits and withdraw completely, in which case we wouldn't be very effective, um, and then you've got this. Uh, other world which is in your head of a world which you're trying to bring into existence which is very different from the from that so-called real world the the real world in your head is uh, is a sustainable world a, a world of um, uh, far less consumption and production and uh, far more sharing and and uh, equity and and um, living with nature and not against nature. You're living, um, you've got a sort of a split, a split personality. <laughs> you're, living, you're living two lives simultaneously, mm -hmm. uh, one, one, one outside and one inside. 
and you're trying to drag the the outside one into into your in, into the the new world which has to come into existence. It it can be hard to it's, balance because even today, um, you know, I turn the kettle on and use electricity to put the toaster for breakfast, and mm. I drove to your house using fossil yeah. fuels in my car, using industrialized microphone and yeah. um, mixing <clears throat> desks to talk about how we are hitting limits of growth and need to consume less. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, mm. there's a, how, how, how is that balanced? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, you, you, threw, you threw a remark in much earlier in the conversation, how do you get from here to there? That is the area that, that really we need a lot more exploration uh, in. But there are some pretty obvious steps. I mean, one, one fundamental step, and, and a lot of people, including uh, some of the alternative economists, have said this, get rid of GDP, you know. Don't, don't set up uh, your main goal as growing this totally artificial and rather fictitious figure. Um, adopt some of the other uh, metrics which measure uh, real human progress. There are an enormous number of activities in, uh, in our present Western society which don't need to be done at all. I mean, advertising is, is one one area that I would attack very, very vigorously because it's, it's making people consume uh, things that they would not otherwise consume. Um, so I think there are steps. There, there are many others as well. But there are steps that you can take. Um, and the approach, I think, has to be iterative because... Uh, moving from one whole paradigm to a totally new paradigm, um, you don't know what's going to work in the transition. So it's got to be an iterative approach. You, you try something and you see uh, whether it will uh, work or not. Um, and uh, if it doesn't work, well, then you modify it or you try something else. Um, and in fact, that was part of the message in that uh, in that 1971 ad that Australia could play a role as a model of, of uh, Australia could set out on a path to try and find the path to a sustainable future, and not in isolation from the rest of the world, but in a in a sharing attitude of saying to the rest of the world. We're going to explore this very, very difficult path to a sustainable future. We are going to share with you uh, our experience of what works, what doesn't work, and, and we will share our technologies with you uh, because uh, each nation will have, have its own unique path because of its cultural and other backgrounds and so on. I hoped Back in the early 70s, it would play that role. It hasn't played that role. And I suspect with the present uh, government and opposition, uh, it's extremely difficult to imagine that uh, they would ever 
want to play that role. They're, they're too um, stuck on this, on this perpetual growth model. Mm. Well, look, John, thank you so much for mm. your time. Now, here's to not having another ad in mm. the Australia calling to live to growth <laughs> in 50 years' time. And hopefully that's because we've managed to transition and not because we're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. um, so, look, any last parting words? Or? There are lots of little bits and pieces that one could fit in and fill in, but uh, the broad picture I think you've covered very well. Welcome back to PGAP, and I'm sitting here with Dalta O'Harkin, uh, the Director of The Way to Live. How are you, Dalta? I'm very good. Thanks, Michael, for having me on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and working alongside somebody that's uh, working on this issue of overpopulation. And it's fantastic be to be talking to another director of a population movie. They were such in short supply a few years ago, um, and now it just seems like it's blossoming. Um, so firstly, tell us a little about, about yourself. Um, what would you say were your key passions, and was there a light bulb moment for you when you started thinking about things like limits of growth and population? I think where it started for me, my mother did environmental science, and she's always had a passion for the you know protection of the environment and that naturally rubbed off on me so from a young age that would have been discussions that we would have had you know around the table i'm an engineer by trade i'd say my passions in life are gardening <laughs> i love i love being out in the garden uh, it's i think that's therapy for me looking around the world it's not always when you recognize the reality i think it's it's a nice place to go to sort of shut off yes it's good to have uh, less humans and more uh, plants around sometimes <laughs> on the other occasion and a little patch that you can tend to call your own and they can't talk back to you <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's it so what was the inspiration and process behind making the film The Way to Live? And I understand you had a YouTube channel before mm -hmm. this, uh, so it's not entirely <laughs> unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, was this a very new kind of project for you? Mm -hmm. um, and for any budding filmmakers out there, what are the key challenges in making a feature film as opposed to perhaps a YouTube um, film? And what are some of the rewards for the troubles? This might serve as a bit of encouragement for people out there who are also um, looking to raise awareness um, on these many issues that we face, you know, environmental issues and, and this overpopulation issue. I'm actually not a trained filmmaker. I learned about this issue and it was, you know, it was such a concern for me uh, that I, I, you know, first went out and I created this little platform called Nature's Way, a YouTube platform, you know, would interview various people and, uh, you know, trying to get this message out to the world. I started that platform around 2016. And then in 2018, I just had this idea, you know, why don't I try and make a film um, about this issue? And I had this idea, went out, purchased, uh, you know, a bunch of cameras and, and mics and 
you know, reaching out to, to various people, hired a filmmaker, hired an editor. Um, this is all coming out of my own uh, pocket primarily uh, at this point. Um, and there's a community of people that I would um, engage with that are also, you know, interested in this uh, issue uh, who got behind me and supported me and, um, you know, recognized that very few people out there addressing this issue. Here we are three years later, and uh, I think I think it done pretty good. It's not, you know, big budget film. Uh, I think we raised about fifteen thousand dollars to make it, and uh, really, that's it's really nothing, you know, when it comes to making films. But I think the product uh, turned out pretty good. Well, I certainly uh, really enjoyed it, and I also can relate when I started. In, in my role with Sustainable Population Australia, uh, there was a video project, Once You Get Past Your Imposter Syndrome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and do things often enough. And, and I definitely wouldn't say I'm a natural at it. But yeah. I was very excited in uh, The Way to Live to see some top population activists, Dave Gardner from World Population Balance and Growth Busters, and Karen Schrag interviewed in the film, both of who have been on PGAP in past episodes. Also Dave Paxton, the founder of World Population Balance. What was it like working with them? Yeah, it was it was awesome. Um, you know, when I first learned about this, this problem, I, you know, started researching and I came across Karen Schrag's book and picked that up and read that and read several other books. And, you know, as you do, you, you start researching, came across Dave Gardner, uh, Dave Paxson, and, and various other overpopulation experts. The start of this film project was reaching out to these people and asking them would they like to participate. And, you know, there's so few of us that are really trying to raise awareness on this issue. I think they always get a People get a bit excited, but also they're a bit skeptical, you know, but they were more than happy to help me try to bring this thing to life. And I really couldn't have done it without them. When you make a film like this, it's an educational experience, really. I learned so much along the way, all the way up to the very end. Um, Karen Schrag especially was was a mentor to me um, in helping me, you know, develop and, and bring this thing together. Would it be fair for me to say that population sustainability is one of the key messages in the film, or at least in the first half of the film? And if so, why is population important to you? And how do you summarise a key angle that the film presents this sometimes vexing issue? One of the keys in the film is, is certainly about overpopulation. But what I wanted to do was try and take it a step further. And that was trying to ask the question, why is the world overpopulated why do so few people recognize this issue and i think one of the key points in this film which makes it quite unique it's, it's trying to look at it from you know the psychology of why very few people recognize this problem and it's ultimately about people's disconnect from nature we have our phones in front of us our tablets our computers all of these things you know, in the modern world have has really disconnected us from reality. And I think ultimately that's what we're trying to get through in the film. One of the keys in the film is learning to live according to the laws of nature, learning to recognize reality. But the overpopulation is certainly at the forefront. This is actually a two-part documentary. I've only really promoted the first part of the documentary. The second part gets into more of what the meaning of life is, you know, where we're headed, 
the deeper questions in life and talking about consciousness development and and so on. I think I saw the first film, yeah. Um, and in that, organised religion and dogma um, was was criticised. But from your perspective, what would you see in its place? Um, are we talking about a more ecocentric form of spirituality, for example, or do I have to watch part two to find out the answer? Or I think the answer is in, in part one, but I think uh, it gets deeper in part two. Um, and, you know, I actually never heard that word before, ecocentric, and, and I had to look it up. It, it really is a, a good word for describing this because it is a recognition that we are all one. We have, as humans, have fallen into this delusion that we are the owners of this planet and we are just inhabitants like every other animal and any, every other life form. Uh, both fauna and flora on this planet. Um, the word spirituality, of course, so I, I would tend not to use that word spirituality because it's a very, for me, it's a non-religious thing. Reconnecting and observing nature is is not a religious thing for me. It's, it's a very natural reality-based communication. You know, it's an observing. And, and I think the reason we touch so much on religion there is because from my own experiences, I've always been a person who's been searching for the truth. I've been always a person looking for the meaning of life. And, and I spent several years myself uh, exploring, you know, various religions. And what I found that it, it was it was dampening my own curiosity. I was told to just believe. And I think when we, we go out and we begin to observe nature and ask questions and investigate and, and are really searching for answers, that's when we really begin to recognize reality and i think when we recognize reality these things such as overpopulation they're easy to recognize you know now i remember at a workshop several years ago we were musing on what pro-sustainable population related feature films were out there and we could only come up with growth busters and dick smith's population puzzle as the flag barriers um, now in addition to the way to live um, it's joining um, a pathanon <laughs> talking about spirituality, that joins um, 8 Billion Angels and Planet of the Humans that discuss either populations or limits to growth. I also can't help but think of the Australian film Esteem, which examines environmental destruction as a form of human disconnection as another parallel that I see in the film. Um, so I was just wondering if you see a shift towards an appetite for these new kinds of films in recent years. You know, I think um, it's apparent that our world is uh, going through a shift. Uh, the human consciousness of Earth, I think there's a shift taking place. You know, the more challenges we come up against, like we're going through now, you know, with this coronavirus and all over the world, there's we're just faced with so many challenges and, and, and people are suffering uh, greatly. And I think what is happening is when people are faced with reality, when they're faced with challenges, the blinkers are coming off. They're being forced to search for answers. People who recognize what problems we have and they're endeavoring to make uh, films that are bringing the answers that people are looking for. You would assume that somebody making a film like this would be a filmmaker, but what I've actually found, Michael, is a lot of the people that are making these types of films are not actually trained filmmakers. You know, being a being a, an actual trained filmmaker and, and trying to make make that a career path, 
those people are often forced into a certain box. Really, if they want to make a career, make any money out of it, they have to sort of fit inside that box. But if you really want to break free of this fixed narrative that the world has set up for us, you have to go out and like like I did and, and many others. It, it's a challenge, but, you know, it's, it's one that I took on and, uh, you know, I'm happy it came together. The film also focuses on the uh, Figu community uh, project in Europe. Um, this project really intrigued me, actually. Um, so can you give us a little summary of this um, community and project? When I began to, you know, research uh, the overpopulation issue, um, I came across uh, this group um called FIGU. It's an organization that is based out of Switzerland. And FIGU means Free Community of Interests Universal. They have, they have a couple of goals. And, and one of them is to raise awareness on the overpopulation issue. And the other part of it that really intrigued me was their writing on consciousness development and consciousness evolution based on the observation of nature. The founder of the community is a man named Billy Meyer, and he's written over 60-some books on consciousness development, various environmental writings, um, political uh, writings, and they would say the meaning to life is consciousness evolution. You know, so that's what really drew me in. Yeah, um, when I saw a figure, it made me want to um, go and live in Switzerland immediately just so I can hang around them a lot. <laughs> I remember all the kind of like the gardening and um, intentional like community-esque groups in Melbourne. If I dared talk about overpopulation, you know, I'd be accused of witchcraft. So yeah. <laughs> it was so <laughs> nice to just see this whole group yeah, of people yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like but... doing all this nature stuff. And talking about populations, like oh my god, you can yeah. do both. It's a rare, it's a rare, rare thing to see people who are actually, you know, when from the outside, I think part of the strategy in this film, uh, Michael, the question I asked, how can I raise awareness on the overpopulation issue? And the question I asked, well, who would be maybe the most receptive to this? And I think it's people who are genuinely in search for a better planet here and search for improving themselves. You know, people here into the environment, sustainability, self-sufficiency, these types of things. So on the surface, yes, you know, working out in our garden and all of these, they, they, they do visually look appealing, right? But of course, we know that that isn't the answer. We know that solar panels is not the answer. We know that wind is not the answer. Um, the answer is about coming back into a balance with our planet, and that's about reducing our population size. You know, um, of course, all of these environmentally green technologies that are coming in, overall, they're, they're a good thing, but they're really not the answer. Even, even a call to reduce consumption, you know, we'll never be able to reduce our consumption enough because we're adding so many people to the planet every day. And what is... Um the reception and interest been to the film so far and I know that um, when this episode is broadcast there will probably be a lot of um, people 
asking me where can they see the film and um, that's always a bit of a vexing question these days. It's never as straightforward as just waiting until it shows at the cinema or, or ordering the DVD online. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. there's always, uh, for, for every time a film made, there's, there's always a very novel way to see it. So um, how would you broadly answer that question? Yeah. You know, uh, the reception honestly has been very good, but I would say that has primarily come from within the community of people who already recognize the issue of overpopulation. I think the hard part for people in this film, you know, a lot of us have grown up in religious families. We, our extended families are perhaps religious. And and I think, you know, a film like this, um, which really kind of pushes back on religion, can be hard for people to receive, even somebody who's not religious. So I think that part of it, you know, people might have uh, maybe a hard time with. But overall, I think people are um, very appreciative of the message. And and, and I think it presents a, a new angle that hasn't been presented before. I launched the film off of my website, natureswayfilms.com, and the film... Uh, can be seen there so but there we go folks naturesway.com um this episode is probably being broadcast for world population day uh, are there any take-home messages that you'd like to share for this or some pithy parting words no pressure i would say get out on the nature take your shoes off get your feet firmly on the ground and just learn to observe the world around you because ultimately it's about our consciousness development and, and we can only we can only do that whenever we connect with the world around us. We connect with ourselves. We give ourselves time to stop and think and observe and ask questions. Um, so I think that's what I would say, Michael. So um, basically the only reason to be on the computer is to watch The Way to Live or the Post Growth Australia podcast. Otherwise, take your boots out and take a hike. Uh, exactly. This is the double-edged sword that we live with, right? Well, Delta, thank you so much for taking time to um, speak with us. It's been a delight to uh, get inside the mind of the person who made the excellent doco The Way to Live. Thanks so much, Michael. Welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where infinitely growing on a finite planet is a little bit shit. I was just talking to Dalta O'Harkin, director of brand new documentary The Way to Live, and before him, John Coulter, environmentalist and degrowth advocate for over six decades, former federal senator, and the current executive member of Sustainable Population Australia. Now, overpopulation advocacy is often criticised for being too myopic, with critics saying that it focuses on one controversial issue arbitrarily in lieu of more pertinent issues. But if one thing comes across in both these interviews, it is that both John and Dalta have a sense of a bigger picture. John discusses equity of material wealth, and Dalta discusses the importance of reconnecting with nature. I think this is true for the majority of overpopulation activists, 
What is often mistaken for cherry-picking is in fact a case of people championing an issue that remains widely misunderstood, even after decades of discussion. So where to here on the population front? Well, the good news is that people are progressively, actively choosing to have smaller families across the world. The bad news is that the population is still increasing by 80 million a year on a planet that is being ravaged by 49 degree summers in Canada, blackouts in China and biodiversity crashes here in Australia. Economies in Australia are desperately lifting their growth economies through population growth while simultaneously trying to price everyone out of the country because that's how neoliberalism works, don't you know? The Federal Government Treasury recently released the Intergenerational Report for 2021, which basically bemoaned the fact that growth has slowed since COVID, boohoo, and that we need to return to growing by a size of New Canberra each year in order to avoid an ageing demographic disaster. SPA has rebuked these claims, both in their discussion paper, Silver Tsunami or Silver Lining, and in their media release in a response to the IGR. Both have mildly enjoyed a trickle of media and community traction, but like anything against the grain, it is always an uphill battle to draw attention to oneself. On the global stage, global north economies continue to draw back on foreign aid and the international organisations such as the UN seem to have their hands tied. This is at a time when demand for sexual health and family planning services from communities in the global south is at an all-time high. The best way to balance this issue is to support charities that are doing this work at the grassroots in lieu of anyone else. Marie Stopes, Chase Africa, Women's Plans Foundation, Plan International. I'll provide some links. For the next episode of the World Population Day special, I'll be interviewing Nandita Bajaj, the new Executive Director of World Population Balance in the USA. During our conversation, Nandita and I discovered that we shared many, many things in common, such as shared passions for minimalism and animal rights. I'm looking very much forward to sharing this with you all. Until then, until then.